Hey everybody, back with another bonus episode on The Mandalorian. So this week is episode 4 for season 3 or chapter or chapter 20 overall. And this is The Convert. This one's really interesting. Um, only 33 minutes long. Kind of a pet peeve of mine, the shortness on some of these. It's one of the shortest Mandalorian episodes. But actually, there's quite a bit packed in here. And I found that really interesting. And I think the show this season has become really interesting in how it's sort of unfolding. Um, so we're going to break that down today. Um, and dig into kind of the way that the show is, is sort of complicating, creating, fostering relationships and connections that are, are um, a little unexpected. And the convert refers to a lot of different people uh within the show and leads to some huge surprises and really fun cameos so let's talk about it so this the show begins the episode begins with uh Din Djarin and Bo-Katan with the other Mandalorians of the watch at their covert on this sort of planet Utah <laughs> planet uh Lake Powell and they're on the beach outside their cave, and they're training, they're sparring, they're doing their Mando stuff. And that's all of them. And it leads to a fun little sequence where uh, Din wants Grogu to sort of get up on his um, Mandalorian indoctrination. So he puts him into a challenge against the young foundling that we met in the very uh, first episode of the season. Uh who was nearly killed by a gigantic sort of lake monster, a big giant kaiju kind of crocodile dude. Um, more on that in a minute. And then he and Grogu spar uh, with darts, sort of fire little paintballs. Good to know that paintball is a sport in a galaxy far, far away. Um, Grogu, in the first two rounds here, loses this challenge. He's not really sure what's going on. He's not really sure what to do. Um, this is, this is not sort of what he's, you know, what he's sort of used to. Didn't give him some pep talk. He's like, it's okay to be you. You've got this. Of course he does. Cause Grogu's a little Jedi who has been training. Apparently, according to John Favreau has been training with Luke Skywalker for two years at this point. So Grogu is kind of holding back on this kid. Uh, Grogu then, uh, ceases to hold back and unleashes some Jedi skills. Tattoos this kid with three, uh, paintballs. He wins the challenge. Um, the kid, the foundling, um, then gets captured by a giant dragon type monster and is carried away. Um, the Mandos uh, fly after him, but the distance is so great that their jetpacks run out of fuel. This is actually for a nerd, a Star Wars nerd. This is interesting be just because it gives you finally a little bit of insight into, you know, uh, what kind of range that these guys have. It's not incredible, and that makes sense given the um, how big the rocket packs are. It can, you know, it's sort of, they're sort of carrying around a sort of small fire extinguisher, you know. Um, so they're not able to catch up to him, but Bo is. Um, Bo is able to track the monster in her ship. Very cool ship. Uh, but this kind of underlines a couple things. One is, is that the Mando's at the covert really need to find a new covert um the <laughs> there are too many 
monsters and threats and dangers around here. Um, I was kind of expecting at some point for the armor or someone to say that the, the reason that this place is so dangerous is because they chose this spot because of its dangers and because these monsters and the terrain and the environment are all sort of a test of a Mandalorian's metal. Uh, we didn't get that. So if this just happens to be a really bad spot, they should probably consider moving. Especially as this is a, a, this mon the flying monster has made a routine out of capturing Mandos and the monster in the lake has, has as well. Uh, these are both terrifying, gigantic monsters that the Mandos collectively um, cannot, to this point, have not been able to defend against. Beg some questions. So Bo tracks the monster to uh, its lair, which is at a, on a perch, a rocky perch way out, way far out in the desert. She comes back and she's going to put together a tracking party. She's going to go out there. So her and Din, Paz Vizla and some others go with her to do that. Um, one of the things that kind of happens through this is, is um, this show, this episode is written by John Favreau and Dave Filoni, who obviously they co-created the show. They, they're running it together. They're such good writers and they're put, you know, they're, they're sort of sculpted this sort of um, the Disney streaming thing here. This particular episode features a lot of repetition a lot of calling things out which have a lot of telling for things that were shown Bo says three or four times it feels like that they can't use the rocket packs or they have to climb up to the perch and the things that she's already established so she establishes that they need to go stealth that they need to climb up to the rock they can't use their jetpacks and alert the monster they have to go in there quiet as possible she says this a couple times and it's it's it, it it's odd it, it it's sort of clunky and there's a lot of this sort of explaining stuff and and sort of uh that lands kind of odd um i don't know what that is about in this particular episode but it, it stood out in what is otherwise a really strong episode happens too in another sequence i'm going to talk about here in a second um but that leaves grogu with um Though Grogu's uh, um, winning some challenges, he's too small to go on this particular gig. And he stays behind with the armor. And then she she then creates for him, um, she tells him that his becoming a Mandalorian is also not just challenges and sparring, but it's also learning more about the culture. So she takes him into her forge. She gives him a little bit of um, her perspective on what the forge represents to Mandalorian culture. And then we get a really interesting sequence and one that fans have been waiting for for a long time. Um, first, she <clears throat> she begins forging him a little Beskar something for him. You also, um, fans, uh, probably from, I believe it's Book of Boba Fett, season one, where Luke gives him... Um, or sorry, Din gives him the little uh, mithril shirt <laughs> made out of Bes Beskar that uh, Grogu chooses over what uh, what had been Yoda's lightsaber. Um, he's already wearing that, and she's it, the armor is making him something else. And as she's doing it, she in the forge there's this big giant metal press, which is coming down. And in and, and stamping, pressing uh, this object into shape. 
and then there's a really great choice here um, in terms of the in the direction and the in the shot composition, um, where Grogu is framed through the through the press, and the press is coming down. It appears to be, from our perspective, is sort of crushing Grogu. This episode directed by Carl Weathers, who plays uh, Grief Karga. Carl Weathers. Um, you know, love Carl Weathers, and he's 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 shown himself to be a, a really um, strong director in The Mandalorian. He directed an episode in season two, I believe. Also, maybe season one, but definitely season two. And this is interesting because as she's explaining the armor, she's given this her perspective. You you know this really interesting sh shot choice of you know Grogu sort of being crush underneath this press and the, you know the sort of his individualism his identity his, who he is is sort of being stamped out and then we're gonna press out another sort of another mandalorian but the scene then shifts into the press and the sound and the clash it, it sort of actually triggers grogu and we get a flashback to order 66 we've seen glimpses of this here and there uh in mando uh before also a little bit in um obi-wan kenobi uh relative to reva um but here we get finally after you know several years now a big chunk of what happened to grogu so we've seen grogu encounter uh clone troopers in the T jedi temple before on the on the night that order 66 occurs um order 66 for folks who don't know i'm assuming everybody knows is when the clone troopers turn on the jedi and massacre them um grogu is defended um by uh, several jedi within the temple as the 501st uh clone troopers um break in push their way in blast their way in you know and it's just a bloodbath you're kind of thinking, are we going to see Anakin Skywalker or Anakin and Grogu going to cross paths? Uh, they don't. Um, this, I think, this opens a huge door in the lore. Uh, this sequence, it closes one as far as Anakin goes. I, Grogu and Anakin appear not to have ever crossed paths. Um, the Jedi defend Grogu with their lives. They get him into an elevator. He goes down, and then he goes down to... Uh, there's another Jedi who's... Uh, whose name I'm, they state, but I'm blanking on. But it doesn't really matter because that Jedi is none other than Ahmed Best. This is really cool. Ahmed Best is uh, the actor who played Jar Jar Binks in The Clone Wars, uh, the prequels, obviously. Um, it is great to see Ahmed Best for a lot of reasons. Um, Ahmed uh, Kelleran is the name of the Jedi. Uh, that he is playing and that he is a badass Jedi. He's got a little bit of gold filigree on his tunic. Uh, a little bit of High Republic action going on there. He's also wielding two lightsabers, a green one and a blue one. And he, he absolutely um, takes down some dudes, uh, some clones. So Ahmed Best plays this role. It's uh, And he protects Grogu. Then he gets on a speed bike and they, they go. And then I'll pick that up in a second. They leave the temple. So this is how Grogu gets out of the temple. Um, Ahmed Best, I just want to say real quick, um, Ahmed Best has gotten a lot of grief 
uh, as several people involved the prequels have from Star Wars fandom over the last 20 plus years, 25 years next year since The Phantom Menace, which is impossible to even imagine because for the longest time when I was younger, it was just this, it seemed like this eternity for this mythical prequel trilogy, which was never going to happen. And to think that that was 25 years ago is uh, frightening to me on a number of fronts. But, um, Ahmed Best probably was the center of the vitriol back then. This is pre-social media, early days internet, so this was half of what it would be today. But that that being said, Ahmed Best get, was just absolutely um, uh, in Jar Jar. A lot of people didn't like Jar Jar. They thought Jar Jar was silly. They thought he wasn't Star Warsy. They thought he ruined the franchise, etc., etc. I never minded Jar Jar. I think George took the character, just he pushed a little bit too hard on some of the goofiness, which he then realized um, in uh, episodes two and three, and he sort of dialed that back to the point where Jar Jar makes a cameo, I think, in episode three. Um, but whether you like Jar Jar or not had nothing to do with Ahmed Best. Uh, Ahmed gave a... A really interesting performance he gave jar jar a, a, a uniqueness and, and, and a life and a and he didn't deserve the the vitriol that came his way he didn't deserve to feel what he felt which he's you know he's been vocal and open and transparent about um you know the the difficulty and and the in the fact that you know he was so he's spoken out about you know his experience with Star Wars fandom and, and the effect that it had it on him personally. And a couple of years ago, um, going back to 2018, um, he he went he went to Twitter and he said that he had almost ended his life, um, which is a deep you know personal admission. And it's very sad. Um, this is his tweet from July of 2018. It that never should have happened. He never should have felt that way. And in fans, um, the discourse around fandom in general these days, every day is another. It feels like another video on YouTube, another podcast about how Star Wars is dead. These people, though, are still watching it because a week later, a month later, a year later, they have another video about how Star Wars is dead. That's funny how that happens. Um, they demonize individuals within Star Wars, whether those folks behind the scenes or in front. Um, they, it's just this overwhelming tide of, of negativity and also this overwhelming need to stake out this personal territory. And some of that is just, you know, you love this thing so much and this is mine and you're, you're, you don't like it. So you're, you're upset and you want to voice that, which is entirely legitimate. Some of that is people wanting to be part of it in the sense that they have commercialized and professionalized their fandom. So they're doing what I'm doing right now. They're making podcasts or they're making YouTube videos or they're things like that. So this isn't, there are no ads, there's no revenue. I'm not making any money off of this. I could do that. I don't. There are people who are doing that though. They've monetized it and that's fine. 
but they've also they've turned it into a career and in some cases and in some cases they're vested they're invested in star wars in ways that go beyond just simple fandom i liked it i didn't you know things like that that leads to in some cases questionable things and it leads in my experience and from my opinion it leads to people who forget that who fans who forget that they're fans they have forgotten their fandom right it doesn't it doesn't matter if you didn't like it that's cool and i've you know if i don't like something i say and, and that's it i don't get i don't get upset about any of it you know um I liked Jar Jar. I didn't love Jar Jar. I never once thought, oh my God, Ahmed Best is awful and I need him to know. Or I never, I never in this period here, there's been a lot of ups and downs since George sold the company. Kathleen Kennedy took over. Disney took over. There've been a lot of ups and downs. I never once thought JJ Abrams sucks because he's an awful person because he made a movie I didn't like. Or whatever the you know book of Boba Fett. I've, I've been vocal about it. Didn't like that. I didn't like it. That's okay. That's it. And that's it. And and for folks listening to this or, or reading articles I've written, you can disagree and let me know what you think. And then that's fine. And then that's really the end of it, right? We don't need to butt heads about it. We either agree or we don't. And if we don't agree, that's fine. That's because you liked it, and that's all that matters. You enjoyed it. Um, that's gotten fraught in the last several years, right? We can't just disagree anymore. We can't just agree to disagree. And then also some people, like I said, are invested in this in ways that really complicate their relationship, not only to the work, to the franchise, but also other fans. So if I'm just as a fan and I'm reacting to this and I've watched this today and I start speculating on what's happening. So... Uh, Kelleran, Ahmed Best Jedi character, delivers Grogu to a landing plat in Coruscant, which is on, on which is parked a, a, a Naboo uh, spacecraft, sort of the chrome ones from the prequels, that appears to be the same make and model, maybe even the same ship that Padme uses in Revenge of the Sith to go to, to Mustafar. I doubt they're the same, the same exact one. But this, what this does is create a connection between Grogu and Naboo that we had no way of expecting or anticipating and complicates what we kind of think about his, um, his, his life between Order 66 and when Din Djarin finds him. So if I were to speculate, as I'm about to do right now, that Grogu may have spent a significant chunk of change in that 25 years on Naboo, someone out there maybe who does know this or thinks they know because they have a source or they're reading a lot of you know there's a lot of uh, speculation on twitter and places like that reddit and some people are very good at speculating they're just, you know they're very cogent they will then be they could read they could hear this and they could be like darby how dare you scoop my scoop right because not only now are you just a fan and we had like ideas because we're all watching the same thing. And 30,000 people right now, as I record this on Wednesday morning, are thinking and recording and writing the same thoughts. But they're triggered because they've lost their scoop. Or they've been scooped. 
because they're monetarily invested. It doesn't, it, it, it breeds a lot of corruption in, in just being a fan. And Ahmed Best has been a victim of that. Jake Lloyd has been a victim of that. Hayden Christensen has been a victim of that. And I think that's rotten. So I am I I am just glad that Ahmed Best is is back in the franchise. He's been back, he's been embraced by the fandom now, going back a few years since his admission in 2018 regarding his mental health. Mental health is real, it's very important. People need to take it seriously. This stuff is not just whiz bang comic book nonsense. This is people's lives, their careers. There are a lot of people at Disney within the Disney family, the larger corporation that are going to get laid off in the next few weeks. Thousands of people. This is their livelihood. This is their lives. People, you know, and we just toss off comments wherever like it's nothing or like we know something when we don't. Um, we don't know anything about Ahmed Best other than what he said, but I'm very happy for him. I'm very happy for Star Wars to see him, and I hope this isn't the last time we see him. We leave him on the landing pad, the landing pad on Coruscant. He's beset by clone troopers. Doesn't look good, but he's proven himself to that point. He hands off Grogu to um, the Naboo folks. This generates a major question, though. Um, the altercation between the Naboo security forces on the landing pad and the clone troopers would probably rep probably merit a report. Um, from the clones that would probably get back to uh, the Emperor, who is obviously uh, Palpatine's originally from Naboo. This this raises some questions. We know from the comic books and the books that there was there's some the Emperor has some ugly disposition towards Naboo post uh, the prequel trilogy. I won't get into all that, but so there's there's some interesting stuff there. Um, that that's going to come out of this some interesting questions that need answers this is a really great great um sort of uh, way to advance the story um you answer questions with more questions and this is unexpected I, this is definitely not what um anyone would have anticipated i don't think in terms of grogu's story um we're making use to real quick as i transition out of this that uh, um we saw in episode three um spent a long time on Coruscant. They reuse a lot of that here, including the uh, public square, the Ralph McQuarrie sort of inspired concept art um, that uh, with the mountain peak uh, in the center um, that we saw in the last episode in the quote unquote present day. We see that during Order 66. Um, so that was cool. Um, saving some pennies there on the budget because there's a lot uh, even though this episode's 33 minutes there's a lot that goes in there's a lot a lot of action a lot of cgi and that goes into the monsters and so we cut back to the covert bow den go off to get the 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 kid um before they do that there's a nice scene that some people might think is a little bit whatever um logistically it's like i don't know quite know why we're you know they leave you know if they leave and they get there at the base of this peak or the base of this uh, rocky spire that they have to climb. They get there at night. They're going to wait till first light could have left early before dawn. But that doesn't matter because this this gives us a scene where we see this interesting moment between the Mandos and the party. So they, they, they camp, they make fire, they're going to eat. And then Bo, because she doesn't know, she asked Din... 
how do we eat when how do we take off our helmet to eat when we're all around each other and, and Den tells her you you leave and you go you go somewhere so you're not seen but Bo because she's the head of the party has the privilege of staying at the fire um it's really interesting and then so she does she takes off her helmet she eats her food and but and it's just a little scene but it, it tells you a little bit more about the culture of the watch it tells you a little bit more about this community and this collective which is building and then they climb the they climb the spire in the morning um great use of practical effects and a lot of cgi in this they build this they get up there to this nest and this is this nest is gigantic because the creature is gigantic uh, they appear to build this entire nest practically this is sort of made out of it's just a, like a bird nest wood twigs but these are big giant logs given the size um they get up there and they find these little um the little baby um monsters who are e but even though they're babies that are huge um it, it almost seems stop motiony i'm not sure it is it uh, probably cgi because the, the the babies are cgi later in the episode but it feels very stop motiony the whole thing the whole episode this whole season feels a lot but you know there's a lot of nice throwbacks to just some stuff that I, I really enjoyed as a kid in terms of just sort of the effects work a lot of practicality in the Mandalorian in general um so I enjoyed all that a little bit of a battle the monster comes he's a very gross terrifying bit where he's carrying around the kid in his mouth and he's going to spit it up and feed it to the babies it's it's yikes um it leads to some business, leads to some fights and some fisticuffs. They eventually down, they get the kid away, Din does. They down the creature in the water, which is then eaten by the big giant crocodile monster from episode one. Um, and then they go back to the covert. Everything's great. The kid is rescued. Uh, Bo is the hero. Um, Din is reunited with uh, with Grogu. And then they've also brought the, the baby monsters with them who uh, are very big and I don't know would fit inside Bo's ship, but we're not going to worry about it. Um, uh, but then this sort of, you know, this is kind of interesting. This is sort of like a little bit of Game of Thrones, little dragons thing going on. Now we got three of them. We're going to train them, I assume. We're going to raise them and we're going to turn them into uh, sort of uh, Mando uh, monsters. So that's, that's kind of interesting. And then we end on... Another small but critical scene where Bo's lost one of her pauldrons in the battle. Uh, the armor tells her she needs a replacement. They go into the forge, and then she says, "I uh, she's make, fashioning a new pauldron." And she's like, "I assume." The armor says to Bo, "I assume that you want a um, the night owl symbol, which is Bo's symbol." And Bo's Bo, eyes like, "I want a mythosaur." Bo sees the mythosaur in episode two. Remember. Um, this has really, uh, shifted Bo. This has put her off her, put, messed up her equilibrium. She's like, I saw it. It's real. The armor is very unmoved by this. And she's like, when you're, when you don't, when you choose the way, when you see the way you see a lot of different things, like this could just have been a mystical experience. And Bo's like, no, I saw it. The armor's like, just sort of almost dismissive, not not really, but a little bit. And she's like, well, this is the way. So Bo is sort of, Bo is a little bit now uncertain, I think, of what she saw. But she's also, I think, she she gets that pauldron with the mythosaur on it. Um, 
she's she's shifting i think into a different space than the armor certainly um it's but it's hard to anticipate what exactly is going on with Bo. Is she just is she falling into the watch into their ways? Is this a gambit on her part? She spent some time early in the episode sort of watching all the mandos on the shore just do their sparring. And I think what she was doing is she was gauging their quality. She was gauging how effective a fighting force they're going to be. I don't think Bo has lost her ambition. To retake Mando, to retake Mandalorian, Mandalore, excuse me. And I, I think we're setting up some major conflict between her and the armor, which I think is a conflict that actually goes way back to the Clone Wars. The armor's true identity is still a mystery. A lot of assumption about it because she wears a helmet which has these little, little horns on the top, which would seem to indicate that she possibly has a connection to Darth Maul and the Darth Maul uh, acolytes when he ruled Mandalore. Um, Bo uh, unseated Darth Maul and she made a point of, uh, she killed a lot of those acolytes. So if if the armor is one of those, this could uh, the, we assume this could get interesting, but it's very difficult to anticipate at this point what's happening because the this, this show is sort of unfolding in, in different ways. The way that the storyline is unfolding with Mando relative to Adin, relative to the watch, is not what I expected. I expected a lot more. Um, I expected him to go to the mines and to sort of be, for him, instead of going back and then just falling back into line with the way, to, to sort of, you know, nothing the armor has told him is true. And there's been a little bit of acknowledgement of that, but there's no, been no real pushback. There's been no real on his part. And Bo, instead of being, she shifted from being this antagonist, this opposite pole of influence to having joined the way. So the, uh, this is not playing out the way I thought. The show um, is, I, I think, taking some cues from Andor and, and, and sort of, slowing down and teasing out and, and just giving little more glimpses into this even though we're getting a lot of action a lot of repetitive action a lot of monsters again if i'm the mandos i'm probably not going to hang out by this covert um but that all being said it's i'm, I'm really enjoying this season so far um i really enjoyed this one um I, I'm 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 really excited about where it's going. And I'm intrigued by where it's going. So I'm curious what you guys think. Let us know if you're listening to this and you have thoughts about it. Uh, let us know. Um, always love to hear you guys. You can get um, you can find us. Um, uh, you can like, comment, subscribe on your uh, provider of choice as far as the podcast. Um, and then we're on Instagram as well. You can find us in the links below. Um, so yeah, let us know. I hope you're enjoying this. Uh, talk to you really soon.